Well, good morning. I hope you've had a good week. Have you had a good week? I, I just got out of COVID prison about three days ago, four days ago. Uh, so I am excited to be among people again. Some people dropped some food off at our house earlier this week. And we talked to them out, outside of our garage for about 45 minutes. And I think we came off as a little desperate. Um, being, not being around people for about uh, 10 days was no fun, but uh, uh, all's good in our household, and I hope the same is for yours. Um, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 3 uh, as we continue in this series. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC, and uh, what we like to do is we choose a book of the Bible and we teach through it. As we believe, that's where the best truth can be found. It is where the truth can be found. And as a result, uh, it keeps a lot of the human uh, dynamic where we try to uh, presuppose on God uh, to a fault. And this keeps us on par with him. And uh, so I enjoy opening the word. We find life there. And uh, so where we've been over the last few weeks is we discovered that Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 are loaded with a lot of theology, uh, where basically denominations were formed out of interpretations of those uh, couple of chapters there. Uh, but chapter 3 gets into, it's kind of like this, this point by which it divides the two halves of the book of Ephesians. Uh, whereas the first half is laying a foundation and a formation for what, uh, what God, how God sees the church, who the church is in God. And, uh, and then Paul in chapter 3 is establishing himself as part of a leader within that church and what that means for the church going forward. And then we're going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6 as we get into those in the next few weeks uh, that it's a lot of application uh, for us on how to engage that which goes on on this earth. And what you'll discover throughout uh, this uh, entire book is the idea that there is oneness. Uh, that's why we've titled this series called One. Uh, one God, one church, one mission. And that's because rooted in this text are several statements as to oneness and unity. And I think in a day like this where there's a lot that divides, I would, I would say that this is welcomed news for each of us here. Last week, as Matt was preaching out of the first uh, seven verses of chapter three, he highlighted a little bit of what Paul's life, who wrote this book, what is, how his life was prior to Christ and what it's been since Christ. Uh, as he said last week and shared out of the book of Acts that Paul who was a religious leader of his day, was well-studied, uh, and was very influential as a young man, and probably that rising leader that people thought will someday maybe become a high priest, or if not, the chief priest. Uh, he had that kind of talent. And so when the church, or the, I shouldn't say the church, when the religious leaders of that day wanted to eradicate the, this rising movement called Christianity, or known as the way, uh, they charged Paul with the responsibility of leading the resistance against the church. And so Paul, in the book of Acts, is seen as the enemy to the church. In fact, he is even the one that oversaw the first martyr of the church uh, when he had Stephen killed. And, and uh, we know that he arrested many, perhaps others, that died under his charge. And so that was the history of Paul. 
Um, but at that time, with his name being Saul at that time, it was while he was on his way to Damascus that he was encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's where his life became changed. He was going to Damascus to continue to persecute the church, but God had other plans for him. And so God intervened, God changed him, and Paul now become, and his name is changed to Paul, and he becomes the leader of the church primarily to the Gentiles. But Paul, being a Jew of Jews, again, he knew his lineage, he knew he was of the tribe of ben Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and, uh, and, and he was also invited into that inner circle of learning. Uh, so he was a Jew of Jews. But what you're going to discover today, but as part of the church, he had humility. And so let's continue uh, our reading in this text, starting in verse 6, and then we'll uh, read through verse 9, and then we'll continue later into the, through verse 13. So 6 to 9. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs then together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things." So Paul, who says multiple times in chapter 2 and now in chapter 3 that there's this mystery. And that mystery is that the church was going to be made up of both Jew and Gentile. And this church was going to become a single, one new creation, one body. And so that was not something expected uh, from the past. And so Paul's purpose then is to not only be a part of this journey, but he is called to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to administrate this unforeseen plan of God among the Gentiles. So again, Paul's purpose was to preach the gospel and to administrate this unforeseen plan of God among the Gentiles. You see, while Paul himself could say, I am a Jew of Jews. I could brag over my heritage. I can brag over the things that I've accomplished as a Jew. But when he speaks of the body of Christ or the church, he says in verse 8, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. I am the, the least of the least. So in other words, while Jew of Jews... When it comes to the church or the Lord's people, he considered himself the least. Now, why would that be the case? Well, imagine if you're now a part of a group of people that have welcomed you in, even though at one point you were killing them, you were incarcerating them, some of them lost family members due to him, of course he is going to remember that he has been given a tremendous amount of grace to even be included in the people of God. So while a Jew of Jews, when it comes to the church, he clearly felt the guilt of having been persecuted, having been the lead persecutor of the church and overseeing the death of many and the incarceration 
of many. That's why he says at the end of verse 8, he goes, it's by this grace that I've been able, that's been given to me that I can even preach to you Gentiles as part of the church. So grace becomes the banner. He recognizes he did not earn the right to be the leader and the preacher and the administrator of this mystery, this church. It was a gracious act of God that he was even included. And so he spoke humbly as part of that church. Now, his message, the gospel, which he says was the, is the boundless riches of Christ, he then says after that statement of, you know, this message, my message is this, this gospel rich with Christ, but he says, then I am called to administrate. To ministrate out in verse 9, he goes, I am to administrate this mystery for which the ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now, I want to highlight the hidden in God because you can make much of what was prophesied when the coming Messiah was to arrive. In fact, there were, you know, again, we've talked about that there are nearly 400 messianic prophecies talking about who the Messiah was going to be how he was going to behave, and also to say what he was going to accomplish. And so there was much known about the Messiah, but what wasn't understood was that there was going to be this new body created by him. And that mystery, this church, as it said in verse 6, this coming together of Jew and Gentile to form one body, one church, that was unforeseen. It was kept hidden in God himself, as it says in verse 9, hidden in God. So this mystery that, again, has been talked about in chapters 2 and now 3 is significant because it has many ramifications, and we're about to see one of those ramifications in verse 10. So let's continue reading. It says, his intent, that being God, his intent was that now, through the church, again, the unforeseen mystery, that through this church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm according to his eternal purpose that he, can, that he will accomplish in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach then God with freedom and confidence. So let me stop there. So after he says that this mystery that was hidden for all of the ages, that Jew and Gentile were going to become one body, one creation. That mystery was kept hidden in God. So therefore now, as Paul is preaching and administrating the leadership of that unforeseen church, and he is now saying that those things that were hidden in God about this church now creates the opportunity that through the church, verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, it says that there is not just the rulers and powers that we can see on this, the face of this earth. We see those things. But there's rather rulers and authorities and powers that are in the spiritual realm. And so what it says here is that because this mystery, the church, was unforeseen and as a result hidden in God and God alone, 
that the spiritual rulers, the dark rulers of this world, had no idea what to expect, did not see what was coming. So the plan for God then is for the church, now that it's in existence, is to reveal the wisdom of God to the spiritual forces of the world. So literally today, as churches are gathering across our country and across the world, that we are declaring the incredible manifold wisdom of God by being here together, worshiping together under one spirit, one truth, one message, and as one body. And as part of that, we are literally speaking to the spiritual forces of this world that they have lost their, their position. They have lost their authority. You see, who is known as the prince of this world? Satan or Jesus? Satan was. Satan was known as the prince of this world. Uh, and so he, this was his dominion. This was his kingdom. And so when the church comes, who becomes the king of all kings? Jesus does. And so the church then is the manifold wisdom of God that, that the curse that, that came upon the earth through sin of mankind and then the ruler of that torturing those who are in sin now has to come under the authority of human beings because they're found in Christ. Warren Wearsby, who's one of my favorite commentarians, said this. So again, keep in mind, this was unforeseen, Uncharted territory, unexpected, even for the spiritual realm. So Warriors Speed, in response to this, says this. Satan knew that the Savior would come, when he would come, how he would come, where he would come. He even understood why he would come, because of redemption. But nowhere in the Old Testament or in any kind of prophecy could one find pointing to the church, the Jew and Gentile, becoming one body. Nowhere. And so he could see, Satan could see that Jews would reject the Messiah. He could see that Gentiles would trust in the Messiah. But he could not see both believing Jews and Gentiles being united in one body, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, completely victorious over him. He couldn't see that. And yet what we've discovered in chapters 1 and 2 is that when we become children of God, that we become heirs of the kingdom of heaven, firstborn, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, therefore in a position of authority. And that was something that Satan could not have guessed. He could not have presumed. You see, we tend to, and this is, I can be guilty sometimes of this as well. We tend to ascribe to Satan more power than he actually has. Satan doesn't know everything. Satan also doesn't have power over everything. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. But yet we tend to ascribe him that kind of credibility. And what we can discover in this text is that the church literally is on display telling Satan every day, you lost your position of authority. You have lost your influence over this world. We now, as the body of Christ, one with Christ, 
and one together have authority over you. And that is something that we need to get into our minds because that is a behavior change. You see, when we think lowly of ourselves, then the what is accomplished is minimized. But when we understand who we are in Christ, we think higher. It's true in the psychology of sports that when we go into a game, if you think that you are inferior to the opponent, more than likely you're going to behave inferior to the opponent and you'll play to that end. But if you can convince yourself and be understood that you are superior, then you have the more likely chance of winning in that sport. It is just true. And so as, as human beings, we have to recognize that if you are in Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenlies, in authority as part of the body of Christ, in authority over the spiritual dark forces of this world. And that is good news. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. There is a moment, a very profound moment in Scripture where this reality was probably first realized by Satan. That first moment where he's like, I didn't see this coming. And now I think I do. It's in Luke chapter 10. Here's the context. Jesus is about ready to send out people away from him for the first time that were his disciples. So he'd been training, equipping, letting them see how he does things, letting them uh, see how he models uh, in different contexts. He's equipped them with the message of the gospel. He's given them as much as he can give them up to this point. Now it's time for them to put on their training wheels and go out on their own and, and, and lead in ministry in the name of Jesus. And so he sends out 72 people to do that. And he tells them, you know, you're going to go into towns. Some of those towns are going to accept you. Some of those towns are going to reject you. But those who reject you, they were rejecting me. Those who accept you are accepting me. And so that's the, the charge that Jesus gives them. So they go. They're probably scared to death, right? This is the first time they're advocating for the Messiahs here, and they're doing it without him being with them. As long as they're with Jesus, they've got the power source right there. It's like, all right, Jesus, we brought you into my hometown. Do your thing, right? And then he can go and do whatever he does. And, and you know, he heals people. He says things that confounds the wisest of the wise. And so they're, they're living under his coattails and his shadow, and it's great. But now he says, now I want you to do it. I want you to go alone. I don't want you to do it. So in verse 17, they return. So he sends them out. Time has gone on. He sends them out and they return. And this is what they say. Lord, even the demons, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now this is a Jesus getting giddy moment. Verse 18, he says, uh, Jesus speaking, I saw Satan Fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At this, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. 
So Jesus sees this response, and he, of course, knew what was going to happen. He knew when he sent them out, you're going to get rejected. You're going to get accepted. Just consider that on my behalf. But he didn't tell them, by the way, the demons are going to submit to you in my name. They had seen that when Jesus did it himself. But to experience it personally as co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven, they were not expecting that. So they go out, and the first thing that they came back to report was, Jesus, we had authority over demons. And what does Jesus do? He responds with a, with a communication between him and God. I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. Now, this statement here is to say by the speed of which it happened. And so this is not talking about heaven as in heaven where God resides, but heaven as being the place of the spiritual realm and saying that, that at that moment, Satan fell like lightning. It was that instantaneous that Satan who had this position as accuser, Satan who had this position of being the king over all dominion here on this earth, the one who had his way of things for a long time, in that moment, 72 people, commoners, not the wise and learned, not the Pauls of this world, but commoners, fishermen, tax collectors, people that were usually set off aside in society, all of a sudden have power and authority over Satan himself. And so he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then this curious phrase, which I wonder if any of you kind of like did a cock of the head sideways when it says, and I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. All right, so what we're going to do is we're having an event next week at our church. We've bought a few scorpions and a few snakes. And, uh, and when you come in, don't worry about it. If you see them on the floor, you can just stomp on them. And if you see a scorpion, you know, don't worry if you sit on one. It might be a little pinch. Would you think I was out of my mind? You probably wouldn't come back, right? If I announce that, that that's going to happen next week. So what in the world is Jesus saying in this moment to say, now I've given you authority over snakes and scorpions? Well, first of all, the first messianic prophecy is found where? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And what does it say? It says, there will be a day when the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the, the snake. That's right, Nathan. The crushing the head of the snake. And the snake was Satan. That's the symbolism of, of, of Satan himself. And by the way, scorpions were often a symbolic statement to those who would be against you. To those who would tend to be your enemies, your adversaries. And so this is very much symbolic of saying, by the way, I'm going to give you authority not only over Satan himself, but I'm going to give you authority over even those who would be adversarial towards you. So in this text, he's saying, I see Satan falling like lightning, instantaneous. It's the moment that Satan realized, what is God doing? What is God doing? He's just given his power and authority to commoners, to people that I've tor tormented for years. And now all of a sudden, 
I have to respond to them. And then Jesus goes beyond, it's not only are you going to have authority over the spiritual forces of this world, but you're even going to have authority over those who would come against you because of your faith in Christ. Puts on a different light, doesn't it? So if this is the moment that Satan first realizes that his full freedom of being able to work around this earth without being confronted, without having to come under anybody's authority unless God shows up with one of his angels. Outside of that, among human beings, Satan had no fear. In this moment, instantaneously, Satan realizes what God's up to. He sees that God is creating a movement of where his spirit is going to be on the people themselves. And therefore, Satan is going to have to respond to the authority of Christ placed on human beings. Going back to then chapter 3 of Ephesians. When it says, under that light, Paul saying, although I am the less of the least of all the Lord's people, this grace that was given to me, to them preach the, to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone this administration of this mystery, that being the church, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, therefore kept hidden from Satan, who then God himself, keeping that hidden, had created all things. His intent then was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to these spiritual forces of rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not accomplishing, it's accomplished. Christ, at the moment when he died, what does it say happened? At the moment he breathed his last, the curtain was torn in two. The curtain was torn in two. And why is that important? Because that which had separated God from man was now removed because of Christ and what he accomplished in his body. And that's why we get the next part of the plan of God, which is verse, verse 12. It says, in Christ and through faith in Christ, we may now approach God with freedom and confidence. So Satan could not, again, have understood. He understood that there was a redemption that was going to happen. That it wasn't going to be just the Jew for the Jew. It was going to also be for the Gentile. But he could not have projected that what that would mean is that the two would become one and become one body with authority, co-heirs of the kingdom of God. And, they, and Satan couldn't have guessed that that means they're also going to have full access to God. He couldn't have guessed that. And so in, in verse 12 when it says, and in Christ and through faith in Christ, we now can approach God with freedom and confidence. Now this might resonate with you from another text, Hebrews chapter 10. It'll be on the screen here. And this is when the writer of Hebrews said something to the same, in the same way. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, so those in Christ, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilt conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
You see, prior to the cross, there was a barrier. You could not approach God. Nobody had access to God. Now, Satan would, have, would be allowed audience with God, but it was not to be in the presence of God. And what did he do? He went to accuse. He was the great accuser. But he was not allowed to stay near God whatsoever. And so, and, and human beings were given only opportunity in occasional moments where God would present himself to mankind. But on an annual basis, a single high priest was allowed into that place where God's full presence was experienced here on this earth, the Holy of Holies. That Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then ultimately into the temple was always separate from the rest of the tabernacle or the rest of the temple by that curtain. But now that curtain is torn and Jesus' body has become that curtain. And as the Hebrews chapter 10 says, brothers and sisters, we now get to enter into the presence of God with confidence, with confidence to be with him. And we can do so freely. In other words, as often as you want, we get to go into the presence of God and engage him with not fear for our lives, but with freedom knowing that he is our father and that we do so through the presence and permission and accomplishment through what Jesus did on the cross. So the plan of God was to, yes, first to give opportunity for the wisdom of God to be presented to the spiritual forces of this world, but it was also the plan of God that it was unforeseen that he was going to allow human beings, this church that was un unforeseen, this church would be allowed to approach him freely and confidently. So this morning, as I was praying for you, before you came here, I was praying for you to sense the presence of God. I was praying that you would come expecting to encounter God. Because if you're a child of God, you have been given free invitation. Remember what I said in Ephesians 2, that he caused us to go near. He invited us. He waved for us to come near him. And so we get the privilege then to be in the presence of God and we can do so freely as often as we wish. These two things, these two things, that power and authority would come to the church and that the church would be given audience with God freely and confidently were not foreseen before a mystery that could not have been understood by Satan and therefore has brought fear to him. So verse 13 is where we conclude. And it says this. Now, what we may have not set up to this point, but I want to make sure it's understood now, is that when Paul's writing this letter, he is incarcerated in Rome. So he's a prisoner in Rome. And, and so you've got this person who's saying, I have been called to preach this gospel, and he has, and to administrate this mystery, in other words, to lead the church to become all that God intended to be, and he's been doing that, but now he's doing it from a prison cell. And the temptation is, is that when your leader is in prison, that you would get discouraged, and that you would back down, and that you would think you're a part of a losing cause. But Paul has just given them the most incredible understanding about the fact that when this church came into establishment, even Satan couldn't have predicted that you would be able to be in the presence of God as often as you want and confidently do so. And also that you, by your mere existence of having authority, are teaching the spiritual forces their limitations. 
Paul now says in verse 13, so I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. You see, Paul was put into prison because he was advocating for the gospel. He was preaching that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah and that through him and only through him can mankind be found reconciled to God. This infuriated, this infuriated the religious leaders of their time. And so then he appealed to Caesar, and now he's in prison and in chains for the very message he's speaking. So he says to the, the church that he loves, don't be discouraged. In fact, in fact, be strong and courageous in the face of adversity. You see, the adversity that Paul was experiencing was going to be for the glory of the church. How is that possible that the church would be glorified by Paul, the leader of it, being in prison? It's because it will show that the authority isn't by some human being that has some great personality or is a great communicator, but the power and authority given to the church is beyond the human being. And so the glory that was going to come to the church was going to be on display that even if you kill Paul, the church goes on. So church, I speak to you this morning, not as ones that are defeated, not as ones that are under the authority of the prince of darkness or the prince of this world, but rather under the authority of the king of kings who has bought you with his own blood. And that by him, we can walk in confidence, on, in display, before the spiritual forces of this world, to say, the church is the miracle you did not expect. How are you feeling being part of the church today? Is this not a miracle? For all that divides humanity, we can come together under one spirit, one Lord, and one mission. I know we have various opinions, but the beauty of singing together where unity comes together and then to know that when we go out of, this, out of this room that there is authority that is given to us in Christ that we do not have to fear that which Satan might bring against us. That's where that famous statement comes in. For greater is he that is in us than, than he that is in the world. Let's pray. So, Father God, we've heard the truth. This is truth coming out of your word. But I can't reach into the heart of those who are part of the church and help their outlook be what it should be. You can do that because you freely engage us and you invite us to come near so, Lord, I pray that if anybody here is walking in fear, if anybody here is walking feeling defeated for whatever reason, if anybody thinks that because of the sufferings that I'm a part of a losing cause, may they be encouraged today to know that we are seated with you, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven, and that the beauty of the fact that regardless of whatever sufferings we have, regardless of whatever happens, 
the church will live on in authority and in power. So we say thank you, Jesus, and we say thank you, Heavenly Father, for including us within your family. Jesus, I can pray these things in your name and by the authority given from you to us. And I am just one of many here in this room that are part of that family. We conclude this prayer saying thank you. Amen. Would you stand, please? We're going to join together our voices. We're going to celebrate the mystery that has now been revealed to us that we are a part of the church, the whole story of the gospel. This is the mystery that's been revealed to us. Let's sing together.
That's a newer hymn that was written that just captures so well what we have been studying in the book of Ephesians. So, are you going to walk out of this room thinking you've already lost the game like the Eagles will lose to the Broncos later today? (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) No, we go into our lives this week. If you're a child of God, you go in knowing that you've been given authority in Christ, that even Satan himself couldn't have predicted 2,000 years ago. But now he has to live with that reality. And we get to live with that reality as well. But we must believe it and live it out in confidence because that's what Christ gave us. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning, we'll have people in the encounter room to my left that would be glad to pray with you. And if you are not a child of God and you're wanting to discuss these things, uh, feel free to talk to someone who may have brought you or you can even go to the encounter room and they'd be glad to tell you more and understanding this incredible mystery found in Christ. So having said that, as fellow firstborns in Christ, where we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, together we receive this, this with joy, that we are invited into the presence of God freely and with confidence, and we do so daily. So go with that authority and find victory this week. Amen. You are dismissed.